Hello and welcome to Serially Curious with Mark and Eve. My name's Eve. And my name's Mark. And we get curious about stuff and then one of us goes and interviews a person that does something cool and then we come back and we chat about it. Today I am on the land of the Gadigal people. Where are you, Mark? I'm in Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. And we always acknowledge that this is the sovereign territory of Indigenous peoples and that that sovereignty should be honoured with self-determination. Yay! (laughs) I want to celebrate that Aotearoa has a treaty and it's great and so should the nation of so-called Australia. Nah, abolish it. (laughs) (laughs) Burn this colony to the ground. Okay. So on this topic today, Blockade Australia. No, no, it's not. It's not actually about that. It's about dog food. Yeah. And I don't know how I conned you into talking about dog food, Eve. Although, in my defense, you should be able to talk about dog food. You're a dog owner. I am. You're a dog parent. I only have a cat. And I say only, not because they're less than, but not to make all the dog owners feel bad out there because I am a parent of a superior fur animal Cats are badder in every way. Cats are sociopaths that would eat your face if they wanted to. Yeah, that's why I love him. (laughs) (laughs) He's very, he's proud and assertive and, you know, has poise and would definitely eat my face. If I died tomorrow, he would not be sad. He would uh, wear my skin as a coat and carry on my life. Yeah, and when I broke my leg last year, my, my left leg, I broke my left leg last year, And so my dog sat on my right leg for two months straight because he loves me. So, yeah. So today we're going to be talking about, you know, what we do to our pets as owners and how we can do more good things to them and less bad things. And Eve, how comfortable are you with the topic of pet food? Because it's something I feel really bad about, honestly. Even before this, this chat, I was like feeling kind of bad about what I was feeding my cat uh, and because the results weren't great uh, my cat had to have some teeth out last year had to have some teeth removed and he's uh, just about on the other side now of a pretty significant diet because Purina I'm going to name a name now because we're not talking about food Purina has a, a food chart that was in like our local pet food store and this Purina branded pet food chart or like pet size chart had photos of cats and they were rated on a scale of like one being nice and like overly skinny actually to six and the word descriptions were all in the vernacular of chonk so like heckin chonk super chonk skinny chonk and like that's not a thing but yeah our cat was on the um the upper median of that chart (laughs) so yeah, uh, pet food. I hadn't, I hadn't thought a lot about it, but I didn't feel good about the topic in general. How, how do you feel about pet food, Eve? Oh, so I felt so. I've been feeding my dog scrap game. He's four years old now. Game meat. So that's hunted deer and kangaroo. I was very excited for a second. Your dog's name was Scrap Game because that <laughs> is. My dog's name's Archie. It's so basic. I, I called him Archie because I was like, I wanted to call him George, but I didn't want him to have the same name as British royalty. And then <laughs> Megan and Harry named their son Archie maybe two months after I got him. I was like, 
Well, I'm just gonna... the order of events is very clear. Yeah. You know, yeah. that royal is named after your dog. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, 100%. Where does one procure scrap game meat? Is there like, I don't know, while you're at the, uh, the black market for poachers <laughs> that we discussed in the last episode, do you also just be like, I'd like half a deer, please, for my dog, Archie? No, like, we get it in coals. Like, in terms of scraps, it's just like, we'll eat kangaroo, and then mm-hmm. he gets bits and pieces yep. that we don't want, or if there's, like, excess, he'll get that. Yep. And then periodically there's, like, wild-caught deer at the butcher. Ooh. Yeah. Which I'd imagine nice. there must be in Auckland. Like, there's, like, just... millions of wild deer that should be hunted. I made the mistake of, yeah, we, we made the mistake, my wife and I, of going to the pet food store to get pet food for our pet. And that's obviously not the right thing to do because the results have been terrible. But, um, yeah, like, we, we've made the mistake of buying the things that corporations make for our, yeah. our little tiny pet friends. Yeah, which, like, is is bad, but also, like, on the flip side, my dog is um, is an absolute snob. Like, <laughs> I'm not joking. Because he knows what quality is. Yeah, I am not joking that he has sent meat that is undercooked back to the kitchen. Like, he'll picked it out of his bowl and put it on the floor and then just sat and looked at looked at it and then just looked at me like, what is this? Fry it up? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Disgrace. <sighs> yeah. So a couple weeks ago climactic that this show is a proud member of this uh, collective of climate engaged podcasts uh, climactic's got a, a guest form where people tend to find it if, with kind of weird frequency a lot of people find this form and fill it out and say hey we want to have a chat about something and i opened this guest form and there was an inquiry from a guy who had a pet food company and i thought interesting like, what does this have to do with climate change or climate anything? And why would I have a chat with him? And then I had a look at the website and it's actually kind of cool. Like not a lot of other brands have among their top tabs sustainability. It's right there next to reviews. In fact, it's harder to find the buy button than the sustainability tab, which is pretty cool. The company's name is Leica. Quick pop quiz. Eve, does the name Leica mean anything to you? Not other than it sounds kind of like Lyra from Northern Lights. That's the only thing I know. And the Ember Spyglass, right? Yeah. That's the same series. series. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Like Some people might be like, oh, if it's L-E-I-C-A, it might be like the camera company or something. But I, I know of Leica as the first biological thing that humans have put in space. Oh, uh, yeah. So the cosmonaut dog... That the Russians sent into space in the, you know, the early days of the space race. Yeah, as a, as a dog, they also sent a chimp, but it was definitely, yeah, the Russians sent a dog as the first thing. I immediately had to ask, you know, is, is this company named after the space dog? You know, the answer will be shared. Um, but I found out that Laika actually in Russian means like barker or woof. Yeah, so like it means a dog who barks. Where they called the dog. And the dog's name was not named Laika. Kind of like how we, you know, spot the dog and stuff. It's just like, it's the John Smith of dogs. (laughs) Bloody Max. Eh? Yeah. 
Turns out the dog wasn't named Laika. They just branded the dog as Laika to make the dog feel familiar and accessible to the adoring populace of the USSR. All right, let's get into it, hey? Yeah. All right, if you're not excited about that amazing story about the space race, then I can't help you. So enjoy. So as we record this, it's uh, 2021. Oh, well, it's late 2021. Due to the miracle of podcasting, you could be listening to this at any time, but that's where our heads are at. COP26 is just wrapped up in Glasgow. I'm listening to three or four episodes a day of what the hell happened at COP26. Climate disasters are unfolding all around us, the latest of which is uh, Vancouver and the tremendous flooding in, uh, in British Columbia, which is affecting also where I'm from in, in Washington. Signs of climate disaster and climate breakdown are all around us, and yet here on Climactic, and what we do, especially on Certainly Curious, is frame that as what we can do in our personal lives, even if, you know, the impacts and the solutions aren't all about the micro scale, that's the impact we can have as individuals. So how do we think about this? How do we keep going? One thing we might not think about very often in the terms of climate crisis is our domestic animals, our lap warmers, our furry children. It can seem so out of sync with the enormity of a global problem to think that our perfect little cherub fur child has anything to do with the climate crisis. And yet, carbon footprints extend past humans to our animals directly through our choices. What is the carbon footprint of pet food, and what can we do as responsible, climate-engaged pet owners? I've got a guest on today, Gigi, who can tell us all about that. So very Warm welcome to the show, Gigi. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Mark. Uh, well, thank you for having me. So good to have you here. Gigi, what can you tell us about the carbon footprint of pet food? You know, why is this something we should care about? I think I would start with a concept of having a pet itself. Like I think pets are such important parts of our lives. Uh, uh, we see them as our, our children, our furry children. Uh, I'm one of those. We want to give them the best lives the same way we want to give the best lives to our children. So that goes with uh, taking care of them, spoiling them sometimes. Um, but that does have uh, an impact on the environment as well, right? Like particularly when you say one pet might not be too much, but Australia has about 10 million dogs and cats alone. They not even consider the long tail of uh, other smaller pets. Like you've got your goldfishes and uh, bunnies. That would give you to 20, 90 million pets, which is a, is a big number. So that is, and just to, to frame that quickly, you know, like you go to a busy dog park and you look around and there's dozens, sometimes hundreds of dogs in one place. And you're just like, wow, this is so much. Being able to visualize 10 million dogs, I'd struggle. So I have to think of like dances with wolves and like the, the <laughs> herd of buffalo on the American plains. And I just imagine a horde of corgis as far as the eye can see. And it doesn't even come close. Yeah, that that would be a, a much cuter version than the buffaloes, but <laughs> I think it's a good analogy. Just to put that, that number in context, because you're right, uh, big numbers are hard to to visualize, right? When it goes to a scale that we're not using the day to day. But Australia has actually about 10 million households as well. So in average, there is one dog or cat per household. Obviously, some people have none, but some people will have two, three, uh, or even more pets. We have some customers that have uh, eight pets. Actually, they they broke our system for for a few <laughs> for a few hours. But 
Yeah, it's a sizable uh, amount in Australia. I think Australia is one of the countries uh, that has the highest uh, pet penetration uh, per household in the world. So pets per capita. Yeah, pets per capita and goes to demonstrate how much we love them, right, as a nation. The other side of the equation is obviously being a living being, uh, particularly animals that rely on a protein diet, a meat protein diet, means that they do have a, a sizable footprint, like a, a typical dog and typical, just say a medium-sized dog, say 12 kilos dog, uh, say a French bulldog, for instance, uh, would consume uh, on food only 1.6 tons of carbon every year. And then just to put that number in context, it's like running four or five washing machines or the, for the, the consumption for the year, those machines, or even consumes more than your fridge at home through the year. So that's a good way of yeah visualizing this scale. It's like for every household in Australia, you're adding on another appliance or however many thousands of kilometers of, of petrol car driving that would be. Our pets, despite having you know no autonomy or choices, have a carbon footprint, and that's directly a result of our choices for them. So that probably leads us well to you know what, what we can do to reduce the footprint of our pets. And the company that you're a part of, Gigi, how we'll get, we'll get into the, what the company is and how, but I guess at the philosophical level, how does the company kind of look at this enormous problem and decide how to start tackling this? Like, what did you guys do first and what's the philosophy there? Primarily, we, we position ourselves as a, a pet wellness company, right? Which means that we do uh, make food as a way to provide wellness to the dogs, to pets. and But we think that as a, as a bigger picture, it's not just about uh, eating well or you don't want to feel guilty uh, for eating well uh, yourself or feeding well your dog. Therefore, we also take very seriously the concept of sustainability and trying to reduce our carbon footprint as much as possible and then offsetting the remaining footprint that we cannot reduce at the short term. Also reducing our consumption of plastic, particularly single-use plastic in terms of packaging and even consuming it through operations. I think there's a lot of... a uh, goes behind the scene uh, in food preparation, not only for dogs, food preparation for uh, humans as well, where you have uh, lots of hidden footprint or hidden both carbon and plastic footprint. So we look into ways to constantly reduce that so that we can provide not only uh, wellness in terms of health and food, because we do prepare uh, uh, food that's human grade to pets, but also wellness in terms of a better planet. That's really cool. And that's a, a distinction that I hadn't really thought of before just now that, you know, if you're a pet food company, how you measure your success is how much pet food you sell and how do you do better as a company? Well, you simply sell more pet food. But if you're a pet wellness company, what you're measuring and how you measure your success is how healthy and how well are the, the pets for whom you know, their owners or your customers. And, you know, the the wellness industry and health sort of labels have, I'm, I'm someone who's naturally kind of skeptical of these things. And, and there's definitely, you know, <laughs> it's a whole nother topic and it's a range, but there's probably no better word for what it is you are actually providing, which is ways to have pets which are well, healthy, and also, you know, by being not just a pet food company, you're you're measuring different things and the actual viability of the planet can actually come into 
how you guys measure your success, which is which is really cool. I doubt that you know any of us would um, not be suspicious if any of the major pet food companies decided, oh, actually we're pet wellness companies because that's not reflected in how they act or what they do. Yeah, correct. Very it's, cool. Um, yeah, I think it's a small distinction, but thus change the mindset that you go about on uh, every decision you make as a company. Uh, the whole concept came from our dog, Laika. Um, so she's a border collie cross, definitely our fur child. Um, obviously, we love her so much. But a few years ago, or 2016, like five, five years ago now, Oh, five and oh, sorry. I moved <laughs> fast in dog years. Oh, five, five moved fast, too fast. Six years ago, uh, Laika was um, six years old, so not not too old, and uh, she was starting to have some health problems. So she had uh, some issues with her teeth, and uh, the vet uh, suggests we even remove the teeth. Removing the teeth, even for a human at early uh, young age, is very traumatic experience. For dogs, it's even worse because you cannot just use dentures or, or some fake teeth. So we started to research better, like take the take her health in our hands a little bit. We realized that actually what was um, causing that was the food that she wasn't taking. We used to buy premium kibo, but kibo in the end is like biscuits, right? So it's imagine if you eat your biscuits every day, morning, <laughs> lunch. Dina, uh, and you don't brush your teeth. Uh, I went to boarding school. I pretty much did that for three <laughs> years. And yeah, the health results speak for themselves. <laughs> oh, I hope you, you brushed your teeth at least after. <laughs> yes, I did. If you're uh, listening, mom which, and dad. <laughs> yeah, but that's what happens to dogs, right? They, they unwillingly, right? They sort of have that as an option. And uh, many owners don't know better because we're just being taught as um, uh, from young age that that's what dogs eat, right? Uh, without challenging why a dog needs to eat biscuits, uh, it's, it's not a natural, anything that would be a preference for the dog, right? So we start cooking for Laika uh, at home. And so every Sunday would meal prep for her. She didn't even meal prep for her own selves, but would prep for her. <laughs> uh, eating better made her recover. Her teeth got better and uh, she still has all of them. Her fur got better. Her energies got better. And then we decided that we realized that we are into something here that could not only benefit her, but could benefit other dogs. And that's when a few years later, uh, 2018, Anna sort of took the step of uh, opening the company, quitting her job and sort of uh, dedicated to the, to the company. And then over the years, the company has been growing. And then uh, I sort of uh, also jumped to support her in the business and sort of uh, keep it expanding. Given that we start this for Laika's wellness, we always had this in mind as well that it shouldn't be just about the food. We need to make a food that is healthy for the dogs first, but also something that we can be proud and happy and serve without feeling that uh, there's a trade-off with the environment, right? I'm personally involved in the sort of environment space, researching for it for about 20 years now. I've been a vegetarian for sustainability reasons for those period felt to me that we need to find a ways to, if we want to consume meat, protein, uh, animal protein for our animals, because they can, they need that to thrive, uh, that there was a better way to, to do it. That's so cool. And that immediately raises a topic I want to talk about with you, which is how do you reconcile that as, as a vegetarian yourself? It must be like a common question for people of like us. Oh, so Gigi, you're a vegetarian. How do you personally kind of, you know, reconcile maybe, you know, even the idea of, of pet ownership of a animal that naturally does need to be a meat eater for its own health. Yes, uh, that's a, a very valid question and one that I sort of uh, have to 
think deeply about it, right? As uh, as it was happening, I think when you're feeding your dog kibo, feels a bit detached because you just look at those uh, brown balls of, uh, of does not uh, resemble meat. Correct, it's like carbs and uh, doesn't resemble meat, even if there are some meat byproducts there, at least on the average kibo. When you start feeding real food diet, right? Because first we start cooking for a lack at home. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a shock. I hadn't been purchasing meat for <laughs> over 10 years. And then... <laughs> and you're buying it by the kilo and there's blood flowing in the kitchen all of a sudden. Yes, yeah, correct. And then as we moved from just cooking for her, but cooking for uh, as a company, the way we cook is similar to cooking at home, but at scale, right? We said, instead of having chopping meat with your knife, you're chopping with a big minsa. Instead of cooking in your pot, we have uh, some large cooking vessels uh, that can cook uh, hundreds of kilos at a time, which just magnifies everything, right? There's even more blood. <laughs> There's even more smells. So that was, I think, was the first thing that I had to get comfortable with that um, in the end, dogs do need the meat to thrive. I think there are some studies that say that they could perhaps survive in a vegetarian diet, but would be suboptimal for their health. Um, and like in the end, like if they are our children, uh, our loved ones, we we need to sort of uh, support them with what they need, right? That's, I think, part of responsibility as well, being a, a pet owner. On the other hand, like on the, I think, more philosophical <laughs> elements of it, more than the physical being there and seeing blood, which we can get used to it after some time. Um, philosophically, I think the way I've been thinking about this is uh, since we launched Leica, uh, we kept sustainability as one thing in, in front front of our minds and we sort of designed the whole uh, concept of Leica to be more sustainable. And here things that are in our, uh, the way we designed the, 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 f- the food itself, right? We use high density proteins. Uh, so for instance, uh, high quality uh proteins, which means that we need to use less of it to get the same uh, the same amount of uh, food to be consumed by the dog, for instance, that's one element. The other element is as well, we offer uh, portion controls to, to pets, which means that uh, they eat exactly how much they need. So I think uh, it's a shocking statistics, but pets uh, or dogs particularly, 40% of dogs in Australia are considered overweight or obese which is way above the human population, right? Uh, and that also comes from the fact that pets sort of, uh, the average pet tries to tell a Labrador to stop eating, right? So as long as there's food <laughs> in front of them, they'll keep eating and they, their mindset is to to keep putting the, the calories, right? So by- As a pet owner, I know how hard it is not to feed if the animal is upset at you and you want it to love you. So you feed Yeah, correct. It. And they look cuter, like, a, like on the sort of, a, they look a little plump, but seems cute and, and cuddly. But the reality is they are eating more than they than they than they uh, would normally need need right. So having portion control avoids a lot of the extra food or extra carbon footprint in, generated. Less inputs, yeah. Yeah, and then the other elements is we uh, try to use local suppliers as much as possible. So we have about ninety percent of our uh, ingredients in Australia, which avoids as well um, the sort of a global footprint that many of the keyboards have. So like many are not even made in Australia and those who are that are made in Australia, they also have high proportions of uh, ingredients that come from abroad because they're mostly, it's a dry it's a dry product, right? So every single component there is dry and has a, a global f- supply chain. And usually made by a multinational who has a global supply chain and yeah, centralized production. And so did you say 92% of your ingredients? About 90%, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. So we only source things that are not 
uh, a quality and reliable source is not in Australia. For instance, we use uh, turmeric. Turmeric is comes from India. We don't have uh, <laughs> much turmeric in Australia. Or we use coconut flakes. We don't have coconut plantations at scale here in Australia. So this uh, is the kind of uh, uh, ingredients that you bring from abroad. Not yet. Get on it, Northern Territory. The climate's getting better for it every year. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Sad but true. Absolutely. And uh, can I just ask, what is an example of a high-density protein versus a, a lower-density protein? Like, I'm imagining high-density beef is just really muscular beef. Like correct. That, that yes, works correct. Out. It's, yeah, it's beef trim, uh, like using the muscle uh, mm -hmm. instead of, say, using beef byproduct, by right? When yeah. you... Start All the getting stuff to that's the not fit for you know, or the humans aren't going to buy, but it's still from a cow, so let's throw it into pet food. Yeah, correct, and that's transformed uh, after uh, rendering process and so on into uh, into sort of a protein, like <laughs> between quotations, let's say. But they call it meat meals, so you can have uh, beef meal, chicken meal, um, you can have uh, well, any any animal meal, and uh, those are the result of a rendering process. And rendering is when you get like anything that might be of a, say, let's say talk about chicken, chicken protein, and then it can be bones, can be frames, can be feet, can be beak, can be feathers. And that's processed at very high temperatures, like over 300 Celsius. So that becomes this powdery uh, inert product to, it's efficient because it kills all bacteria uh, and makes it shelf stable. That that's that's what helps on the supply chain, but it's not good for the animals. The, the consuming it because anything cooked at 300 Celsius ends up generating carcinogenic substances. Like eating eating the sort of a black part of uh, when you just sort of uh, grill your uh, vegetable or a burger if you eat meat and you have that that black part. That's uh, that's what it is. Jeez. Oh man, and that, why is that Labrador so happy to go and eat that that bowl of, you know, mass market food? And like, actually, that that is a bit of a question. Like, our dogs just, you know, they're hungry; they'll feed what you give them. But like, is there additives or something that, that yeah. makes this food appealing to dogs? Yeah, and no, that that's exactly the trick. Obviously, there's lots of sugar, lots of carbs, right? The, mm. the for being a shelf-stable product as well, it sort of a, requires a lot of, a, and for distribution process that they use in manufacturing, requires that. So lots of sugar, and then with flavorants and uh, artificially added vitamins and, and and minerals, because obviously when you cook anything at 300 Celsius, all the natural vitamins sort of uh, get get destroyed for this process. Yep, makes complete sense. Uh, anything of good bacteria for good for the gut and these kind of things get all destroyed. So they add a lot of flavorants uh, and artificial vitamins in the end, and those are enticing. But it's the same thing as like, uh, like as humans, right? If you can get fed in burgers every day, if, if without thinking uh, other things, just for the taste, and you like humans like crave sugar as well, right? Yeah. So that's that's what is the analogous. I'll smell a burger. I'll think I want that. I'll take a bite of it and I'll think, hmm, and then I don't want to eat more. Like, <laughs> or I'll regret yeah. it as soon as I finish eating it. Uh, this is why this is an episode of Certainly Curious, because I can just go on tangents and ask random questions because I'm <laughs> weird like this. But have you done like a flavor test, like getting a dog and get like a, a bowl of, I keep wanting to say brands, but I won't because I know these are the type of companies that would come down on me. <laughs> like a bowl of generic X over there and a bowl of Leica food over there. And have you seen dogs, you know, what do they prefer? Definitely. We, we do this taste test and we get as well from, from our cost, feedback from our customers all the time. Like it's, uh, in the end, even if the pet is 
is used to eating kibo all the time uh, when they they smell and see real meat, right? There's a, a, a different level of excitement. Mm. Uh, even if you're like you're eating at home, right? The, the pet might have their kibo bowl full, but if you're eating <laughs> uh, something that smells good, they'll be by the by the by your table looking at you, right? Yep, that's a good point. Very cool. So you guys are doing a lot differently and you're fundamentally, as we said at the start, you're not a pet food company, you're a pet wellness company. So from the ground up, there's a lot of differences between what you guys are doing and uh, generic. And I keep wanting to say some of the big brands, but I'm not going to do it. And I'm thinking about what's sitting out in my cat's bowl right now. Um, so what are some of the, the things that were surprisingly easy to do differently or better than business as usual when you're setting up the business? And maybe what are some things that you're still wanting to improve on that have proven really difficult to do? Like, you know, getting only 90% of ingredients when I'm sure you'd ideally love to have everything be locally sourceable. There's a lot of things that are not as hard as one would think uh, how to do. So I think every company... Beyond pet food, I think every company in general should look at these things. Like, I think everybody is uh, in, in the show here will be uh, familiar with the concepts of scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, right? But scope one emissions is the ones that are directly generated by your organizations. I think that's the ones that are uh, much easier than you think. It's everything by definition controlled by your organization, right? Uh, I know it might require. I mean, you you guys don't have solar panels on your roof, and you're not you know directly powering the organization through renewable energy, are yeah, you? Yeah, we do. We do have uh, solar panels. That's uh, I was gonna say that's the will fall into the scope two, which is the energy that uh, the footprint of the energy we consume. So so so. You, but you are right. Scope one and scope two. Even if scope two is called indirect, you can still act on it, right? Because you can have solar panels, or you can uh, perhaps source from suppliers that only offer green energy, right, in first place. It, it requires some investment, requires perhaps some trade-offs, but that's something that I, we see as an investment to the planet, right, as an investment on uh, the business continuity in some senses, right? It's cheaper to save the planet now than <laughs> to have uh, bushfires every year uh, in 10 years from now, right? It's going to cost a lot to terraform Mars. Correct. Um we had to be for all for this process, and it's not necessarily uh, overnight that everything can happen, but I think we could do lots in terms of uh, recycling everything that's generated in our facility to avoid single-use plastic usage inside our facility, right? We, we use, for instance, uh, our gloves that we use for team and the production are all biodegradable. Our shrink wrap, the pallet wrap, all biodegradable. Uh, we, as I said, recycle 100% of our cardboard. We also, uh, through our process, we sort of drain fat from the from the meat just because we want to make it as lean as possible. Even if we already mm. buy uh, lean meat, we remove that. That fat, instead of uh, dumping it, we sort of uh, get it recycled as well. There's a another company that comes, collects, and uses it for like making soap or the products that require this kind of uh, products. So this is the kind of thing you can do uh, yourself and uh, similar with the solar panels, sorry, that we also managed to install recently in the facility. Takes some work, but it's easier than you, people would think. The flip side is the things that are not directly in your control because scope three emissions, it's everything that has to do with your packaging and your suppliers, like the life of a product outside your walls, let's say. So there's some things here that, again, we have a partial control. So for instance, 
we try to make our packaging as biodegradable as possible. Like some elements are recyclable as well. We do prefer even things that can be biodegradable because then uh, even if it ends up in a landfill, at least we know that over time uh, will not take 500 years to biodegrade. But then we also need to work with our suppliers to try to make them uh, more sustainable, right? If I think I can simply change all my pallet wraps to be biodegradable wraps overnight, I cannot change every single supplier that sends me something uh, to be in a biodegradable plastic. So we need to work progressively with them uh, and understand as well that different industries have different uh, timelines and mindsets and um, progressively have discussions with our most important suppliers, right? Like, uh, for instance, I would love that our logistics supplier had green fleet of, uh, <laughs> let's say, electrical vehicles, but that's not going to happen in Australia in the next, uh, say, 10 years. Uh, not because our supplier doesn't want to do it. It's just the whole network needs to improve and the company needs to evolve. Uh, but we'll keep working with them. Now, I'm going to say it so Gigi doesn't have to. In the next five to 10 years, depending on the outcome of the next federal election. That's true. Fair. That's that's uh, that's a very good point, uh, Mark. Um, so perhaps there is hope. <laughs> perhaps. I, I doubt you'd be doing this, any of the stuff you're doing, if you didn't have hope because, you know, it's... As you say, some things are you know easier than you expect, but it always easiest to go with business as usual. That is the the path of least resistance. Overall, how how do you feel like you and Anna, you know, doing this company? Like when you wake up in the morning and you, of course, know the enormity of the climate crisis. It's it's probably never too far away from your, you know, conscious, much less your subconscious. Like, how do you feel about you know the last couple of years you spent and the every day you're spending now? Like, do you feel like you're in the right place doing the right thing for this, you know, pivotal time we're living in? Yeah, no, definitely. That's uh, something that uh, I'm probably, I think everybody thinks about this, uh, but I think probably I spend more time worrying than <laughs> than I should or more than the, the average citizen should, uh, thinks about it. Uh, that's why I think it's, we are in the beginning of our journey. I do think that we need to continue improving. Like, as I said, we have doing reducing everything that's uh, as possible internally. So from our footprint, like scope one and scope two, it's a little bit more than 10% of our footprint, which means that the other 80, uh, 90% comes from the ingredients we use, the supply chain that we use. So uh, that nowadays we offset those sub footprints with uh, offsetting projects that sort of plant trees. Like we, we partner with uh, Green Fleet, carbon management company that uh, plants native trees, multi-species, close to national parks. So it sort of expands the ecosystem. They do a great job uh, in offsetting this. But for us, we, we decided to invest on this carbon footprint to sort of put the economical, let's say, commitment out there already. But the ambition is that we don't need to offset anything, that we work with our suppliers and gradually reduce their footprints so that uh, Leica becomes not only a carbon negative company, but that our net emissions actually are much lower and perhaps no offsets are even needed. So I see this as a beginning of the journey. Uh, every day we wake up, as, as I said, uh, not necessarily feeling, oh, let's pat uh, ourselves on the back and be happy that we have done our job, but saying like, okay, we're doing something responsible and uh, and that's the beginning. Like we, we should continue doing this and hopefully uh, working by working for our suppliers, they will be more sustainable as well, not only to serve us, but to serve the whole other, their, their whole client base. That's a really good outlook on carbon credits. And, um, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people about what they're doing in their business. So uh, 
you know, when I'm not doing this or all the other things I do, uh, there's a show I'm producing called A Positive Climate, and we're talking to businesses who are trying to do their utmost or, you know, trying to engage with climate change. And whenever uh, carbon credit is talked about as a solution, it's it's a worry because, yeah, they're, they're transitional things. And every day you're using offsets is a as a day that more needs to happen. So it's really encouraging to hear how you talk about it. And it's awesome to get that established in such an early stage of the business where here's our cost to offset all the stuff we'd like to actually be able to change. With every step forward, it's actually a decrease in your cost of your offsets. And I guess the sheer size of your scope three emissions compared to your scope one and two, me as a potential customer of Leica, it makes... Like I wouldn't have thought about it until you said it, but I'm buying pet food from you, but you're not the one raising a cow, feeding it X number, hundreds of tons of feed and grass and thousands of liters of water, and then having it turned into meat. All you're doing is taking meat and putting it into a meal and delivering it to me, but you're taking responsibility for that calf, that cow, which is which is stunning. Yeah, no, correct. We try to do that because uh, I think if we don't do it at the moment, I think in a perfect world, if everybody takes care of the scope one, uh, you'd be there, right? Because the electricity companies will take care of the scope twos and one company is scope three, somebody else is scope one, right? So the, everything would be taken care of, but we don't live in a perfect world, right? And if, if my suppliers are not moving at the speed that I want to move, I'll take responsibility of their of their emissions and I'll work with them to sort of reduce over time. And then ideally they will they will become sustainable. And, and then I think the other thing we're trying to do as well is just to put in context, right? Different proteins will have different carbon footprints. So if you say like our our beef bowl, our beef recipe, that has generates for every kilo of that recipe generates 15 kilos of uh, CO2 equivalent emissions, right? Uh, and that's already better than kibo. That's about 23. But if we look at our chicken recipe, our chicken recipe emits five and our turkey recipe emits six. And we just recently launched a kangaroo recipe that emits four. We are obviously pro-choice, so customers can choose if they want beef, but we also want to be pro-transparency and sort of a go through this journey with our customers in terms of nudging them, they will not only implement whatever they learn on their dog's diet, but they even think about their own diets by just having the numbers out there, right? So that's one of the things we're working, sort of offering alternative proteins that have lower footprint, particularly for uh, wild harvesting of some animals that are perhaps overpopulated in certain areas by education, by this trend, right? So for instance, nowadays our Average for our food, if you pick out all of our proteins, is about 9 to 10 kilos of a CO2 equivalent per kilo of food. But if we nudge everybody to use chicken or some proteins that are similar footprint to that, that would already have. I think the challenge for us is to keep developing more and more recipes that are still optimal for a dog's nutrition and health, but that are more sustainable. That's so cool. Yeah, just, just yeah, by rolling out more of those choices... You're then also starting to introduce some scale into those production capacities. So like the it's been very exciting seeing how kangaroo for meat production in Australia is slowly, slowly growing. It's great seeing it in supermarkets and having it as an option for, for dog food, pet food is brilliant as well. A, you know, a botanist friend who just will never stop telling me just how it makes zero sense for Australia to have cloven hoofed animals as 
And you got all these bounders going around. So two quick hypotheticals for you to, to wrap it up here. Either or answers, maybe, or or feel free to do use an option C. Which of these, I know just enough about this to be dangerous, probably. Which of these two options excites you the most as a way of reducing the scope three emissions for Leica when it comes to beef production becoming more sustainable? It'll be great to actually talk to you as you know, someone who this is a part of your production. Carbon neutral beef through, or at least greatly reduced uh, carbon em- uh, methane emission beef through um, asparagopsis and like the seaweed feed option of like cutting down on methane through the ruminant process or option two like lab grown beef and like you know the separation of beef being from a cow well i guess i'll i'll, I'll put that under the assumption that um we are doing cows because there's an option to just do more efficient animals in first place like chicken right uh or on a personal level as a human to do a vegetarian based diet a vegetable based diet because Dogs cannot thrive without meat, but humans can. Under the assumption that we are doing cows, definitely the first one. Well, we can have a whole podcast just about about this topic, but I'd say that <laughs> I think lab-grown meat is a concept that sounds exciting, but is very hard to scale. And uh, the scaling of that will require such a big infrastructure that if everybody is going to eat, this type of meat globally are going to feed the, the the whole world. Gigantic factories, lots of energy. And by gigantic factories, it requires a lot of, of a metal, right? And a lot of uh, transportation and energy to, to run those factories, like all these steel, stainless steel tanks, right? Uh, I think everything that we build in this type of tanks nowadays is a pharma level, right? So we're talking about you're having few milligrams, mLs or milliliters about each uh, of these com- components, while meat, you're going to be having kilos, right? Uh, like it's, it's another scale, not only another scale, it's like a, a million X <laughs> bigger, right? This, this scale, which would be, to be honest, I, I, if you put the maths all together, I know there's a lot of startup money coming to this space, but if you do the maths, it simply doesn't, doesn't stack. It's, it, you require a ridiculous amount of large area just to have this type of production. Really good insights. And it's always nice to actually check just this cool stuff I've heard about against someone who's, you know, in the industry and can give your uh, your qualified opinion there. And that's a cool perspective. Last hypothetical. I hope this isn't, you know, terrible, but um, what do you think is going to happen first? Like is either going to start offering food for humans or <laughs> uni students are going to start eating Leica because it's healthier and better than what they can get on campus. <laughs> no, I, I, it's, it's funny because... I think the other day we had some snacks on, on the in the office, like a cereal bars. And then I just took one and started reading what the ingredients that were there, right? And I was like, come on, guys, we cannot feed our humans worse than we feed our dogs, right? <laughs> Without joking, our team does eat like every now and then. Like people, whenever we have a new recipe, for instance, uh, we got we get our dogs to test, but also some of the humans, they, they like to test as well, give it a... Give it a try. I think um, some recipes are probably better than others, like in terms of a human palate. Like uh, the turkey recipe is quite mild and sort of uh, easy for the in the human palate. But you get something like a lamb is richer, and then not it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. I don't think we would uh, ever commercially try to sell to humans. To be <laughs> to be honest, uh, there's so much to be done uh, in helping the dogs. And I think, again, personally, I've, for human diet, I think humans should try to minimize the 
the meat they consume. Even if they consume meat, they probably want to have a, a, a balance where meat is uh, like a smaller proportion of the fee, everything that they eat. Where a dog, like our recipes, is six percent uh, ends up six percent plus ends up being meat, uh, followed by vegetables and then some uh, like a sort of a superfoods. Amazing. Well, I think that that speaks volumes. You know, even while you're running a business that sells meat, you can also, with full integrity and complete consistency with your own message, advocate for people eating less meat. That's wonderful. I think that's a uh, like is a wonderful example of the kind of business we need more of in the 21st century. And Gigi, thank you so much for your time and answering some of my off the wall questions, <laughs> slaking <laughs> no, some thanks, of my curiosity. Fun. Thank you. No, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Welcome back, Mark. Welcome back. My God, I feel like I've been to space. <laughs> with your cat. Yeah, no, that would be hell. Oh, my God. Like five days in a space capsule with my cat. No, no. My cat needs fresh air and distance from me sometimes. Yeah, Archie would do poorly in space. I also, one of my key takeaways, which I really enjoyed of this talk, is at the start, I was like, I would watch the whole world burn if I got to see a migration like wildebeests, except corgis. <laughs> <laughs> Just, it would make the Lion King very different if it wasn't a herd of wildebeest, but a herd of corgis that killed Mufasa. Oh my god, I'd just be so happy. <laughs> Yay, I'm really glad that that came through. I am sick of the old ways of describing large things. I am over knowing how many equivalent soccer fields or Manhattan Islands. Nowadays, if I can make anything into a herd of wildebeest scale, I will. Yeah, nice. Well, and, and it's a great imagining. It was really great because I started off being like, light up the whole world. I want to see the corgis and then I'm probably going to die because I've just torched everything <laughs> in order to see these corgis. And then it was really great that Gigi made it so clear how important it is not for for the pet's health as well to take care of mm. the environment and to make environmentally sound choices so that was a really great moderator for me with my obsession with corgis <laughs> good that that managed to distract you from the corgis slightly the, the whole discussion about how yes you can do a lot of things to minimize you know your pet's impact and footprint and we can talk about just the whole thought of actually your pet having a carbon footprint and us acting like that's not ours because we're the ones directly making all these choices for them but to actually do stuff that's best for them and also having this good side effect so like you know actually doing right on every metric yeah well then i think i had to like adjust the way that i was thinking because of like the way Gigi was talking about like single-use plastics and the way that they were taking account of every little bit of what they were doing, I had to really remember that it's like, this isn't a household, this is a business, you know? Mm. Like, this is an industrial-scale system yeah. rather than just like, I'm going to do this myself and how much more challenging that is but also how much more impactful that is, you know? Because if they bring their suppliers along with them that has ripple effects out 
all over the place, which is super cool. So as we record this, you know, like, you know, this is the week that Shell bought PowerShop and it's been like a big ripple through a lot of things of like seeing that, oh, you know, this little company that did a lot of the right things getting snapped up by the big oil major, but like they got snapped up because they did the right things and it proved to be popular and they became a target for acquisition. It's like Leica is doing a lot of things that we wish the major companies were doing. And the only way to start getting the major companies to start doing them is to actually, like, start doing them at a smaller but still commercial scale. It's like, you know, going back to the start of the episode, Eve, you know, we, we can't all kind of feed our dogs our game meat scraps, even though more of us could, but but not everyone can do it all the time. So if we still have to buy pet food, we should make it a lot more like this than... The alternatives from the big companies, and I again, I won't say it here in the context of their food now, because these are the people that make pet food. They will grind you up and put you in pet food. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to mess with the tongue with the abattoir, dude. No, <laughs> don't don't pick fights with people who buy uh, ink by the barrel, and don't mess with butchers. Yeah, uh, big time. I think I'm just in the habit now of cooking that for Archie, but it would have been super cool if. There had been a company where it was like that was just pet food rather than me having to go and like source food for my dog. Do you think the uh, the question was fair? And do you think like it's the kind of thing someone would ask, you know, like, you know, a vegetarian who feeds meat to their animal? Like, do you think that's like kind of like people would try to like get the vegetarian with a gotcha question about like, oh, how can you ethically still buy meat, but just for your carnivorous fur baby instead of yourself definitely but people like take swings at vegetarians for sport any reason whatsoever it's just one of those things of like you know we live in a world of contradictions and and hypocrisies and any reason to like get someone in there they'll someone will eventually have a swing i dare say because people like me who who eat meat do so guiltfully and knowingly and the uh the the enjoyment is always tinged with uh regret yeah and pets don't have that that guilt no they just have like utter enjoyment of the food that's in front of them can we do something different at the end of this episode and just a quick volley back and forth of like things learned or you think like memorable moments one thing I learned was that I really love it when companies talk about their scope three emissions with as much like intelligence and and just ability as Gigi did. That was just awesome. Yeah, that was an absolute highlight. I loved how considerate like Gigi and Laika were to like when they think about what what it is to be a well-being company how Mm. um systemic they were in considering that rather than just like no nasties in the actual food you know like that they were considering a whole range of factors including sustainability which and scope three emissions so Mm. yeah found it interesting that even like a food which is like probably nearly just about as good as making food at home for your pet you know depending on the meat that goes into it, it varies between sort of five kilos to up to 20 kilos of co2 emissions per kilo of food 
I thought that was just very, very visceral, and that ratio is kind of crazy, and yeah. just speaks to how how intense and full of emissions agriculture is, especially you know uh, for meat 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 culture. What's that <laughs> called again? Animal agriculture. There it is. Yeah, animal agriculture. Yeah, is extremely intensive, but I think. One of the great things about this discussion was the consideration of the spectrum of that impact and minimization, considering that we're talking about animals that are carnivores and need to eat meat, unlike us, which I think mm. is really great. I found the creation of kibble process, just in the way Gigi described it, of how you have to render down animal products and honestly byproducts and like just just melt everything down to the form it's like a glue is how I imagine it like a glue like substance at 300 degrees celsius and then dry that out to it's like literally this inert bone meal powder and then form it into biscuits and the dogs love it and why do they love it because it's full of additives and sugar and crap and this is why I'm not going to say any brand names right now <laughs> feels a little bit like a, like a sci-fi thing where you melt people down and then you it's very much the matrix you feed the dead to the young and spray yeah. green yeah yeah <laughs> so I also learned that if I was a uni student again I would definitely have at least tried once to eat like a the dog food. I think I probably would too have just like given it a given it a red hot go. See how it compares to like a Campbell's jar like can soup. Yeah, it's probably much better than like the Migoreng noodles that were my specialty, my go to <laughs> in uni. Like the cheapest possible mince, some veggies and some some Migoreng. Nah mate, get a get a bowl of lamb. <laughs> yeah. For your dog. But you're your own dog in uni. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with me about this eve. Uh, I gotta say, I didn't expect to be so curious about pet food, but, you know, is always the way once you start talking about a topic, there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. So I want to really thank Gigi for reaching out and coming on the show, talking with me and answering some of my ridiculous questions. And thank you, Eve, for joining me for another one of these. My pleasure. Let's do it again. All right. Stay curious. Hey. <laughs> Hey! <laughs> About cereal! This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.